0: South Africa is no stranger to GBV violence, but each time a new case manages to make it to the news, society is still shocked. Just days after the unthinkable murder of Courtney Peters, the kidnapping of two university students and the brutal events that would follow sent shockwaves through the South African nation. On the 27th of May 2017, so many lives would forever be changed, and the rampant societal issues that plague the country would once again be thrust into the spotlight. And one young woman, only 21 years old, with her entire life ahead of her, would be the focus of media attention. This is Hannah Cornelius' story. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. So before we get into the events that transpired, let us meet the person who is the focus of our episode, Hannah Cornelius. Hannah Cornelius was born on February 13th, 1996 in Cape Town to Anna Cornelius, a lawyer, and Willem Cornelius, a magistrate. She grew up in Scarborough with one younger brother, Andreas, who was three years her junior and was diagnosed with severe autism in his early years. According to her parents, Hannah was a very different child. She did not have the normal teething problems as many other children did, and her parents didn't go through that terrible twos phase with her. Her early and developmental years were full of happy memories, laughter and kindness. She grew into a conscientious and caring young woman, always looking out for everyone around her. She was particularly close to her grandmother, and the two of them had a special bond, and spent a lot of time together. And although she came from a family where she had absolutely everything she could ever want or desire, she never took that for granted and she never became a spoiled or materialistic type of person. In her later teen years, when she was around 16 years old, she had gone with her mother on a trip to India. Shortly after, as her birthday was nearing, her parents had asked her, well, what would you like to do for the big day? And she had responded that she didn't feel good spending all that money on herself and an elaborate birthday bash when there were so many people around her living in abject poverty. So her alternative birthday plan that she posed? Well, she wanted to create gift bags for the children in the nearby Red Hill informal settlement. So once these packs had been made, she had then gone with her gardener to hand them out. And this is how the rest of her birthdays that she spent at home would go. Hannah went on to attend Redham House during her school years, a prestigious private school, part of a global chain of independent schools. As she grew up, she also developed a strong love and talent for playing the piano, And she had a passion for drama. In school, she excelled academically and matriculated with six distinctions and an average of over 85%. And outside of academics, Hannah would spend time volunteering at the local animal rescue organization, Tears. Shortly after she had turned 18, her parents had offered to buy her a brand new car. I mean, that is surely one of the most exciting things that could happen in a young adult's life. But instead of choosing a fancy new vehicle, which I'm sure she could have, she decided that she would be happy with her grandmother's 1984 City Golf. Her grandmother at the time was in her late 80s, so she was no longer using the vehicle. Hannah then went on to enroll in Stellenbosch University, where she studied a degree in humanities, majoring in languages, literature and philosophy. Her family was slightly disappointed that she had decided not to pursue a career in law. However, Hannah held steadfast to the notion in her mind that she wanted to do something that could actually help people. One of the most beautiful things about Hannah, who was a beautiful girl, was not her physical features, but rather her ability to see people for who they were, regardless of their skin colour, their social standing or their assets. She loved purely and without prejudice. Her father would later say, Both me and her mother were immensely proud of raising a child for the new South Africa, a child without the baggage of our generations, with little interest in money or material things, with no prejudice regarding race, religion or social standing. A remarkable child, on the cusp of growing into a remarkable young woman. However, her life trajectory would come to an abrupt halt. And so the night of the 26th of May 2017 rolled around. After a night out socializing with friends, as is pretty standard within university, one of the guys in the group whom Hannah knew but wasn't incredibly close friends with, Cheslin Marsh, realized how late it was. It was around 3 o'clock at this time and he decided to make his way back home. Unlike many of the other students at the party, although he was enrolled at Stellenbosch University, he didn't live in the dorms. He lived in an apartment with his mother around 10 kilometers away. He also didn't have the luxury of owning a vehicle, so his mode of transportation was his skateboard. Hannah, being the person that she was, saw him about to leave with his skateboard and decided to offer him a lift home. She then refused to take no for an answer. This was the person she was, always helping someone out. He had obliged and he had placed his skateboard in the boot of her vehicle. The two of them had then left and this was the beginning of the end. At around 3.23am, the vehicle the two were driving in, Hannah's grandmother's Blue City Golf, was spotted by a sharp CCTV camera pulling into an open space near Battery Center on Bird Street in Stellenbosch. The area that she had pulled into lies adjacent to an open piece of land. Shortly after they arrive, four men are seen, walking in the direction of the camera. They seem to be observing the vehicle before they continue walking, as there are still cars coming and going at this time. They then pass by the camera and they go out of sight. It would later be discovered that earlier that night, two of the men, Parsons and Faneerkat, had been smoking drugs at a house in their area. Later testimony would also reveal that the four men were on their way to a nearby block of flats. However, they admitted that they were on the lookout for somebody to rob. Their intentions were clear. During this time, Hannah and Cheslin had continued talking in the car and she had switched the vehicle off. About 10 minutes later as they were saying their goodbyes and just before Cheslin had the chance to exit, he was interrupted. And what exactly is this interruption? Well, two of the men that we previously saw have come around the side of a building and they had then approached the vehicle. Later testimony would identify these two men as Geraldo Parsons and Vernon Wittboy. Vitboy had approached armed with a knife and Parsons had a screwdriver. Immediately Parsons had shoved his hand through the open driver's window and pointed the screwdriver at Hannah's chest. Cheslin had instinctively grabbed his hand but Vidboy had then appeared on the passenger side of the vehicle, Cheslin's side, and he had pointed a knife at him. The men had then said, stand still, of say The remaining two men, Nashville Julius and Eben van Nierkak, are then seen arriving towards the back of the vehicle. Cheslin is then removed from the front of the vehicle and he is placed in the back of the vehicle behind two of the perpetrators. In the front of the vehicle, Hannah is placed between two of the perpetrators there. The men then begin to frantically look for the car keys. Because when all of this was going down, Hannah had hid the car keys in a bid to not allow them to get away with the vehicle. She had told them to take everything, but just to leave the car behind as it was her grandmother's car. After a few moments and minutes of not being able to find the keys, they then threaten her life. At this point, she then gives up the car keys. Realizing that things are probably going to take a far more serious turn than he would like, it is at this point, after stealing a cell phone and 40 Rand from Cheslin, that 29-year-old Nashville Julius exits the vehicle and therefore is not present for the disturbing chain of events that are to follow. And all of this has occurred in only 15 minutes. At 3.39, the car is seen pulling out of the parking spot and the true nightmare for Hannah Cornelius and Cheslin Marsh begins. During the ride, the men had allegedly stopped in Cryfontein looking for drugs. Along the way at Halshuchter Pass, Cheslin and Hannah were taken out of the vehicle and searched and Cheslin was shoved into the trunk of the vehicle and Hannah was placed in the passenger seat wearing a cream jacket. The next time the vehicle is spotted and potentially the last time that Hannah Cornelius is ever seen alive is at a Caltex petrol station in Stellenbosch. So why the stop at the garage? Well, Vidboy had attempted to draw money from the ATM inside the garage using Cheslin's bank card and wearing his sleeveless jacket. However, he did not realize that the pin he had been given was incorrect. And so he is forced to return empty-handed to the vehicle. Cheslin would later face the consequences for this lie. Later testimony would state that after the stop at the garage, Hannah was quietly complying with all of the demands made of her. She was silent, staring out in front of her into the darkness. These men had promised her that they would return the car to her after they had used it to get home. Yeah... I'm not really buying that, and I'm pretty sure Hannah wasn't either. Under the guise of almost pitch black darkness, I'm sure what must have been in absolute terror, between 5.30 and 6am, the car was pulled over into the vast piece of land near the sewage works in Cryfontaine, and Cheslin was taken from the boot. He was then ordered to place his head on the bricks. Cheslin said a prayer knowing what was going to happen next. The last thing he saw before he slipped out of consciousness were two men, each holding a brick. With Cheslin out the way, Hannah was next. Hannah was now completely alone with these men and obviously terrified. She told them that she would do whatever they want as long as they let her go afterwards. She is then taken to a remote paintball field on Bottle Ray Road. It is here that she is repeatedly raped. I won't go into the very graphic details out of respect for Hannah, but from the forensic report, it was clear that she endured a great amount of pain and suffering as a result of these men's actions. The very fact that these men proceeded to do what they did, even after having removed the only threat to their so-called theft plan, highlights the deep-rooted psychological nature of their actions. It went far beyond simple sexual pleasure, and rather entered a space of power exertion, in a violent and cruel manner. It was a violation of her privacy, her dignity and her humanity. After the men were done with her, she was then forced back into the vehicle and she was placed in the boot. The group continued driving, this time past the garage she was last seen alive in and into the vineyard populated area of Stellenbosch. They pull up alongside a vineyard near a stream and forest by Gronhof farm. At this point, Hannah resisted getting out of the boot of the vehicle as she realised something was very, very wrong. It is at this point, whilst she is still holding on to the sides of the boot, that she is stabbed in the neck by van It is here that Hannah will take her last breaths as she is brutally attacked first enduring two stab wounds to the neck from Vanierkak, and then a heavy rock weighing around 37.5 kilograms is dropped multiple times on her head by Vidboy, causing blunt force trauma to her head, her face, and her skull. Her body gives out instantly, and she is left lifeless in the field, her sweater pulled up, and her pants pulled down. No respect for her, even in death. And these men are not done just yet. As the sun begins to rise and a new day is officially beginning, the men head back to Cryfontaine. But little do they know that Cheslin, who was left for dead, is regaining consciousness as that very same sun begins to rise. He runs to the nearest house, jumps over the wall and tries to seek help, However, the homeowners turn him away as they were scared that he was involved in some sort of gang fight. At this point, he was covered in blood and this was early in the morning and the area is well known for being high in gangsterism. By pure chance, a police vehicle is driving by and the homeowners then flag down that police car to assist Cheslin. Soon after, Cheslin is taken to Cryfontaine Community Health Hospital and then later Tigerberg Hospital. Reports would later show that he had open wounds and gashes on his head and his arm was fractured. A metal plate would later be inserted into it. Doctors would say that he was lucky to survive the moderate to severe skull fracture. Throughout this entire time, he was constantly asking about Hannah, and he provided a full description of the vehicle and assailants, which allowed the police to put out an APB, an all-points bulletin, on the car. It was, however, around 8.30am that morning when her body was discovered in the field. Over in another part of Cryfontaine, after allegedly visiting a drug den and then picking up the fifth suspect, more on that later, Parsons, Witboy and Vanjerkak then proceed to follow and rob a woman who was on her way to work. The poor woman luckily managed to seek help almost immediately, however, after this event she was left traumatised as walking to work was her only mode of transportation and it's not like she could just stop if she wanted to. She refused to initially testify, however, after some convincing from the police, she did so at a later stage. The men had then taken her cell phone and handbag, and for the next few hours, no one is entirely sure of where they went or what they did. However, later statements by the accused had said that they had gone back to Delft, to Vitboy's child's mother's home. What we do know for sure, however, is that around 1pm, they had kidnapped and robbed another woman, Mimi October. The robbery and kidnapping took place in Kjeldrofia while she was walking from a shopping centre. Around 12 minutes past 1pm, CCTV footage shows the vehicle arriving at the Shell in Brackenfell. Vitboy hops out, in different pants than the ones he was wearing before, and he heads straight in to the ATM to draw out money from the kidnapped woman's account. Parsons then is seen to join Vitboy at the ATM and they withdraw $3,900 from the account. During this time, the woman was still sitting in the back seat with Vanniierkak. After taking her two cell phones and her wedding rings, she is then dropped off, terrified and traumatized on Butler Railroad, just a few kilometers away from where Hannah’s body was discovered. Vannierkak is then dropped off back in Stellenbosch and he receives a one thousand rand for his part in the crimes that were committed. And then, there were two. Now these two men decided to head back to Delft, however, along the way they passed through Stellenbosch, which is where undercover cop Constable Bulalani Sikor then begins to follow the vehicle, which, as I mentioned earlier, has been reported as stolen and being involved in a hijacking and kidnapping. Soon after, a police car is alerted, and it is then that a high-speed car chase ensues. In a last-ditch attempt to escape, the Blue City Golf is seen pulling into the Duars in die Verge farm. Blocked by the entrance, Constable sequel gets out of his car and begins to give chase to the men. Cut off by a security guard and a metal fence, the men then abandon the vehicle and make a dash on foot. Luckily though, although they disappear into the farm, Farm workers soon alert the police to where the perpetrators are hiding, and they are apprehended. And not a moment too soon. So let's meet the faces behind the monstrous acts that were committed. I want to preface this by making a few notes. Firstly, all of these men had grown up together. Witboy and Fanierkak were good friends, and they lived quite close to one another in clutersville Parsons, on the other hand, had grown up in Cryfontaine. However, he spent quite a bit of time in Clutersville, as that is where his girlfriend lived. Secondly, there was mention of a fifth suspect by these men, known only as Kaki. However, the police were never able to track this man down, and so there was little to no information actually available about him. It is believed that he did exist, though, as the laboratory also returned DNA results for an unaccounted male. And the other two women, who were later robbed, would state that they had seen a male who was darker in complexion, pretty much how the other assailants had described him. However, besides conflicting reports from the perpetrators themselves, No other information has been unearthed on this person. So let's talk about what we do know. Vernon Vitboy grew up in Cape Town and only attended up until grade 6 in traditional school. After this point, he began to work for his uncle, selling fruits and vegetables and making an honest living. However, that soon all changed around the age of 12 years old. This was the point where he was sent to go and live with his aunt, as his mother was working extremely long hours and did not have the capacity to look after him. It was also during this time that he had completed up until grade 12 at a youth centre. After entering adulthood, besides racking up a rap sheet longer than my dischem till slip when I go in for one thing, he also ended up having two children. At the time of the crime, he was 32 years old and his two sons were five years old and six years old. He would also allegedly attempt to pay maintenance for his children from the profits of the crimes that he committed. If I had to get into a full list of all his previous convictions, we would probably be here all day. But let's just say from 1997 to 2016, he had 16 criminal convictions, mainly for housebreaking, theft, possession of drugs and escaping custody. He was in and out of jail and sometimes he just got away with a slap on the wrist and a hundred rand fine. I kid you not. And probably one of the most vital parts of his identity was that he was a member of the notorious numbers gang, the 28s, and he ranked as a colonel. Seeing as Vitboy did finish grade 12 though, he had the cognitive ability to understand the nature and consequences of his actions. Given the fact that he also had a list of prior convictions, he had the experience of consequences, which, if he was inclined to change, would have in most cases prompted that change. Although his advocate would later state that he was under the influence of drugs at the time of the crime, there was also no evidence to support this theory. Geraldo Parsons was born as one of three siblings. His father was a bus driver who unfortunately passed away in 2013. Geraldo completed up to grade 9 in school. It was also in school during this time that he was exposed to the notion of gangsterism. This exposure had actually prompted him to join a gang in order to gain a level of safety and protection. After leaving school, he would go on to have three children. At the time of his arrest, he was 28 years old and the children were 6 years old, 8 years old and 12 years old. During this time, he was also working as a casual worker on a farm where he earned 700 Rand per week, However, the majority of his income came from the crimes that he committed. From the income from his crimes, he would also allegedly pay maintenance for his children. He too, along with also being a part of the 28th gang, had previous encounters with the law. Three prior convictions for housebreaking, theft and possession of stolen goods. Two of those had come with jail time and the other sentence was suspended. He was also ranked in the 28th gang as a sergeant. His tattoos would also later paint a picture of the type of man that he was. I'll chat about that in a little bit though. Eben van Nierkerk was the eldest of six siblings and still lived with his parents. Both of his parents had a drinking problem and unfortunately his environment growing up was not the greatest. He was also surrounded by abject poverty and he only completed up until grade 5 in school. Around the age of 13, he developed a serious drug problem and this also gave way to the many crimes that he would later commit in a bid to fuel his addiction. After leaving school, he did not pursue any serious relationships with women and did not have any children. His work experience was incredibly limited as he had only worked for a period of 3 months at a construction company. In 2013, he was convicted for robbery with aggravated circumstances. He was also nicknamed Sess due to his involvement in the 26s number gang. At the time of the crime, he was 29 years old. Nashville Julius was raised with love and care by both parents and he had one younger sister. In many ways, he was very much unlike the other men I have just mentioned, in terms mainly of his upbringing. He was allegedly taught respect and given all that a child needed. He was a quiet child and had a stuttering problem in his younger years. His childhood was a pleasant one, according to records, and although his father consumed alcohol, there was no evident family issues. He ended up completing up until grade 11 in school. He did end up having a child, however, the child lived with the mother, not him, and his mother used to help to maintain and care for it. His healthy upbringing and his life trajectory took a turn for the worst, when he began to hang out with the wrong crowd and he became involved in using drugs. He later racked up seven convictions from the period of 2006 for an assortment of crimes, such as theft, possession of drugs, and housebreaking. So now that you know a little bit more about the men who were involved, let's talk about the trial that began on the 21st of May, 2018. Although testifying to certain elements of the crimes that took place, all four individuals pleaded not guilty to the charges against them. Initially, it was also stated that being under the influence of drugs during the time of the crime played a major role. It was, however, later established and confirmed by the judge presiding over the case that the consumption of drugs did not affect the cognitive functioning of the perpetrators. They had still demonstrated follow through in their plan. Attempted to avoid cameras at the petrol station, wore condoms to avoid DNA being matched, and whilst Vitboy had changed his pants, Vanierkag had burnt his. All of these actions are not common to those under the influence where all semblance of logical and rational thought is often lost. Also, the money they had from the crime was not used to purchase drugs, but rather for child maintenance payments, with Parsons planning to sell the car too. Throughout the trial, the men showed no remorse, smiling, smirking and even laughing at points. So when it came down to the charges, Nashville Julius, who left earlier in the evening, was charged with robbery and kidnapping. The other three men, Parsons, Van Nierkerk, and Witboy, were charged with murder, rape, attempted murder, kidnapping, and robbery. On the 7th of November, 2018, Judge Roshini Ali handed down her judgment. All four men were found guilty of the robbery with aggravating circumstances of Cheslin Marsh and again on the same count for Hannah Cornelius. They were also found guilty of the kidnapping of both Cheslin as well as Hannah. Vitboy, Parsons and Vanierkak were then found guilty of the attempted murder of Cheslin. They were also found guilty of the rape and then murder of Hannah Cornelius. Again, they were also found guilty of robbery with aggravated circumstances on Nkumisa Nkwena, the lady whose bag and phone they stole the following day. Next, the three were also found guilty of the robbery with aggravated circumstances as well as the kidnapping of Mimi October. It was greatly disputed that any of the accused actually felt real remorse for their actions, and rather, they felt regret probably at being caught. Parsons expressed no remorse or emotion when recounting what had been done to Hannah before her death. But he only cried because he said that he felt as though he had betrayed his girlfriend. Vitboy cried during his recorded police confession, clearly feeling sorry for himself, but showed no emotion when relaying the incidents of the crimes committed. Van Nierkak would later write a letter of apology to Hannah's parents. Within this letter, he would claim that he was scared of the other men. However, during his trial, he did not directly acknowledge his role in the crimes committed, thus arguably negating any honest and sincere apology. And then as the trial had proceeded, he would go on to claim that the police had forced him to write the letter as a form of confession. So when it came to sentencing, this is how it played out. Vernon Wittboy and Geraldo Parsons received the same sentence. They both received 15 years for robbery with aggravated circumstances of Cheslin Marsh. Fifteen years for robbery with aggravated circumstances of Hannah Cornelius. Ten years for the kidnapping of Cheslin Marsh. Ten years for the kidnapping of Hannah Cornelius. Twenty five years for the attempted murder of Cheslin Marsh. Life imprisonment for the rape of Hannah Cornelius. Life imprisonment for the murder of Hannah Cornelius. 15 years for the robbery with aggravated circumstances of Nkomisa Nkwena, and 15 years for robbery with aggravated circumstances of Mimi October, and lastly, 10 years for the kidnapping of Mimi October. Eben van received almost the exact same sentence, except he only received eight years for the kidnapping of Mimi October. After 25 years, Witboy, Parsons and van will be eligible to apply for the parole process. Nashville Julius was sentenced too. 15 years for robbery with aggravated circumstances of Cheslin Marsh. 15 years for robbery with aggravated circumstances of Hannah Cornelius to run concurrently with the first sentence. 7 years for the kidnapping of Cheslin Marsh. 7 years for the kidnapping of Hannah Cornelius to run concurrently with the previous kidnapping charge. So all in all, he was sentenced to 22 years and he was considered a good candidate for rehabilitation. (laughs) The judge would go on to say, The state correctly submitted that the accused can't be allowed to patrol the streets in search of opportunities to perpetrate violence and brutal crimes, as they did in this case. Indeed, society deserves protection from them. Although the sentencing was done and dusted, Hannah's death and the entire ordeal had consequences and effects that were incredibly extensive and profoundly impacted so many lives in the process. So let's begin by looking at Cheslin Marsh. He ended up spending two weeks in the inpatient care center of Tigerberg Hospital. The doctors had also discovered that due to the trauma that he had experienced, he was left completely deaf in one ear and would thus need a hearing aid. Unfortunately, his mother, who was a single parent, could not afford it. However, a crowdfunding campaign started by Hannah's cousin led to him receiving 30,000 Rand, which not only secured his hearing aid, but also assisted in the healing process. He also ended up dropping out of university due to the trauma that he had experienced that day. His mother had also struggled to pay for his outstanding university fees as his hospital bills had set them back quite a bit. His student debt was luckily later written off. Although he was relieved at the verdict and that the men were punished for their actions, the entire ordeal was difficult for him to process. His mother would later break down and cry in court, asking how these men could do what they did To someone who had done absolutely nothing to them. And on the other side of a city, Hannah's friends and family mourn her loss. Hannah's service was held in Fishhook. Hundreds of people turned up to celebrate her life and say their goodbyes. I met Hannah about seven years ago when she was in grade 8 and I was in grade 11. Outside the library, she was sitting across from me, very well composed, looking extremely beautiful, just drawing, you know, with the most perfect and beautiful confidence in the whole entire world and I thought to myself this could be my wife. After Hannah's death her aunt had stated that the accused had acted like monsters. They had the chance to step back and evaluate their actions along the way but chose to persist in cold-blooded violent action. Soon after Hannah's death, her father, who was nearing retirement age, was medically discharged from his role as a magistrate, largely due to his feelings that he would struggle to maintain impartiality in subsequent proceedings of cases that were similar to Hannah's. Hannah's mother, Anna, soon became a shell of the person she used to be. She almost immediately turned away from the successful law firm she ran and she delved into creating the hannah cornelius foundation as the days weeks and months went on she grew further away from the person that she used to be and as the first anniversary of hannah's death loomed the darkness within her grew around 10 months after hannah's death on march 25th 2018 hannah's mother went swimming in the morning Now, this wouldn't be strange in itself as she was a proficient swimmer. However, this day, the seas were incredibly rough and choppy by Scarborough Beach. And it was also this day that she never returned. The official reports would state that it was ruled as an accidental drowning death. Her husband was also adamant that it was not a suicide. However, he stated that she probably did not have the energy or willpower left to get herself back to shore. And so this left her father and her younger brother, Andreas, who I mentioned earlier is severely autistic. And thus, he struggles with the concept of death and understanding the associated implications. After her death, he had stopped by her picture on the wall every night, and he had asked, when will she be coming home? When will her vacation holiday days at home begin? This continued for a year and a half after her death, and potentially still does. Her father was beyond heartbroken. He says he feels empty, as though there's nothing left to strive for. No hope, no goals, no future. His only concern is ensuring that his son has the best life that he can have. He would go on to state that he almost felt guilty for the publicity that Hannah's case and trial had received whilst so many women, children and elderly from marginalized and vulnerable societies have their stories brushed over time and time again. And he's not wrong. This was definitely a case that was more spoken about in the media compared to many of the cases that I have covered previously. Although the lack of media coverage on cases of the more vulnerable in society is an entire issue on its own, Today I want to delve into the roots of why crimes like these occur in the first place. So if you're familiar with my channel and previous videos, you will have definitely heard me speak about the overwhelming presence of gang culture as well as the subculture of violence particularly within the Western Cape. These two concepts, gang culture as well as the subculture of violence, overlap in many ways and they go hand in hand with one another. I also went into full depth with this in my previous episode about Cameron Wilson. So today I'm going to delve deeper into what it means to be in a gang in South Africa the factors that drive one to join such gangs, and the implications of that association. So first off, when I use the term gang, I am referring to the urban phenomenon often found in cities around the world where there is low income and often a subculture of violence. Gang-related murders in the Cape Flats in Cape Town largely offers one explanation as to why the recorded murder rates are so high in the province. It is estimated that gang membership in the Cape Flats areas ranges from between 80,000 and 100,000 members in approximately 130 gangs. These gangs contribute up to 70%, of all the crime committed in the area. So I'm going to be speaking about the numbers gang today, in particular the 28s. So for those of you who need a refresher or haven't watched the Cameron Wilson case that I previously mentioned, this is for you. The 28s are part of the numbers gang, a gang initially started in prisons. They are one of three. There are the 26s, the 27s and the 28s. Honestly, there is so much information, testimony from ex-gang members, books and resources on gangs which you can easily find online and I will also leave some resources in the description so I will be brief here. The 28s are responsible for fighting on behalf of all three gangs, thus they are the most violent and most prevalent in prison too. They are divided into two lines. Gold, the males, and silver, the females. In addition, each group has different rankings, very much like the army. The more you accumulate, whether that be victims or income, the higher your chances are of rising up the ranks. Higher rank means more power, more power means more control and more reward. The tattoo seen on Parsons' body epitomized the notions and belief of the gang. There were graphic images of naked women along with slogans like hungry for money, thirsty for blood but boy also had tattoos marking the 28 gang on him. Being part of a gang both in and out of prison can drastically alter the experience of an individual. Not only in terms of protection, but also in terms of income and opportunity. The process of actually getting into one of these notorious numbers gang is quite complicated and allegedly the initiation is quite brutal. But for new members, for them, the outcome is well worth the emotional and physical price they pay. The presence of gangs in communities psychologically impact and change the environment in which they operate. As I have previously spoken about with cults, gangs offer the individual an experience and opportunity that they more often than not are lacking within their current existence. Gangs mostly exist in areas where there are already significant risk factors. The main risk factors I will be discussing today will be divided into three main categories, namely personal, environmental and family. Given the fact that the individuals within this case and also in many other cases joined gangs during their adolescence, I will be examining the factors related to this period of development. So, on a personal front, during the adolescent years, the self esteem of a child is at its most fragile point, and the circumstances, both internal and external, surrounding the individual can be the difference between a healthy or a low level of self-esteem. A low self-esteem can often be a leading cause to joining a gang, as the individual may feel as though within this new group, they will belong, they will gain respect, ultimately leading to a more positive self-image. At this age, peer approval plays a massive role in development, as young people tend to view themselves in relation to their peers. Thus, if their peers are in gangs, the pressure of belonging can be a central factor in their decision of whether or not to join a gang. There is the widely held belief in areas where gangsterism is rife that there are many economical and social benefits to belonging in a gang. Next, we have the environmental factors, which I feel play a massive role in the notoriety and prevalence of gangs within South Africa. According to the ecological systems theory, the immediate environment in which a young person grows up forms their microsystem, comprising of their school, neighborhood, home, and immediate family. Their macrosystem, on the other hand, includes widely shared cultural values, beliefs, customs, and laws. Both the micro and the macro systems have the power to influence one another. For example, the subculture of violence in the community that has been tolerated and integrated as a norm influences the way in which interactions occur and relationships are built between family members, school peers and even neighbourhood residents. Societal factors like the high levels of unemployment in the youth, violence in the community, substance abuse, poverty, and a lack of access to support structures all form contributing factors on the decision of whether or not to join a gang. The unemployment rate in South Africa as of last year was 35.3%, with youth unemployment being a serious issue, resulting in the attraction of many at-risk young people to the allures and so-called benefits of gang life. Violence in the community often leaves those most vulnerable with very few options in the bid to protect themselves. This is also the reasoning Geraldo Parsons gave as to why he decided to join a gang at such an early age. Being part of a gang guarantees a certain level of protection and safety and often refusal to join the aforementioned gang will leave an individual in a more vulnerable position than they were before. A major factor that is also closely associated with the aforementioned factors is the influence of substance abuse. Many gang members will use substances prior to and after committing criminal activities to numb the guilt, shame and pain associated with the acts. For the vulnerable youth, they see this substance use as exciting and they will often join purely for the chance to have regular access. Although all the men in this case used drugs at some point, even allegedly during the crime, Eben Fanirkak had started his substance abuse journey in his adolescence. He then began committing crimes and partaking in gang activities in a bid to fuel his addiction. Lastly, one of the most important group of factors that really does hold a massive influence in the path that a young person will travel and the decisions they will make is their family? Although having good parents, like in Nashville Julius's case, did not stop him from entering a life of crime, it did create some sort of understanding in him of what was fundamentally right and wrong. This is demonstrated in his exit from the crime before the brutality began. On the other hand, Witboy Parsons and Faniarka did not have the best family lives and this directly impacted their worldview and the way in which their sense of self developed. If there is a sense of isolation, in that the parents are just not there at all, or perhaps they are there but under the influence of a substance, so not really present, This truly affects the sense of security that a developing child has. This sense of belonging and family is then rediscovered in a gang, where gang members often are involved in many activities together. If there is a lack of love or support in the home environment, the vulnerable child or adolescent will naturally seek it elsewhere. Love is the fundamental building block to any healthy development. Where there is a lack of parental figures or guardians or where the relationship is dysfunctional like in the case of Ivan van Nierkak's alcoholic parents, there is a lack of supervision and guidance. The main role of a guardian or parental figure is to showcase the correct path to follow as well as to offer support during the difficult times. Without proper guidance, it is often too easy for these at-risk youth to stray down the wrong path. By offering membership to a gang, the leaders offer not only a form of income, but a family. A family that many of these at-risk teens are looking for. Take, for instance, the fact that both of the individuals who admitted to being a part of the 28s joined when they were barely in their teens. Their criminal paths soon took flight. Vitboy's first encounter with the law was at 13 years old, and in just two years he had racked up 10 different charges against him. A report from 2016 stated that there are incidents of children as young as 9 years old in the Cape Flats, joining gangs. And as I stress in every single episode when discussing these gangster-ridden areas, it is not the majority, but rather the minority that are engaged in this behaviour. However, their impact is felt on a far larger scale, especially by all the other innocent individuals who want no part in this violent rhetoric. The gangs mainly target vulnerable young boys, Often those without any family bonds, a low level of education and no real hope or plans for the future. For these boys, the gangs offer a life of money, women, power and recognition, which they feel they would never otherwise achieve. The youth from these areas are unfortunately bombarded by issues of safety and violence every which way they turn. And this confrontation can become too much for many of them to combat. This environment, combined with the poverty of the area, the legacy of territorial violence, and the attraction of belonging to a group who can assist in overcoming these difficulties, make the decision to join a gang almost too easy for many vulnerable children and adolescents. But this is not to say that every child growing up in these circumstances will fall prey to gangs. However, with the right combination of factors, the risk is greatly increased and the consequences potentially disastrous. Gang affiliation allows the individual to feel safe, included, have access to financial means, as well as gain a true sense of power when committing acts for their gangs. The power that is received from the acts committed serve as positive reinforcement to continue perpetrating as the reward is seen to be worth the risk. And that being said, going to prison only serves to aid in the rise of rank, as is evident within Parsons and Vitboy and their particular rankings within the 28s. During all of the gang initiations, there is never mention of all the negative factors that come with joining a gang, and once again, this could form an entire episode on its own. But at that moment in time, a vulnerable adolescent, a vulnerable child, a vulnerable person is simply looking for the positives, for something better than the situation they're currently in. Within many perpetrators within South Africa, there is also a lack of fear of the criminal system. And this is actually something I touched on within the Stasha Arunsa case. This also leads to a very big issue that was highlighted within this case and in many other cases in South Africa. And that is the rate of recidivism in South Africa. South Africa has an incredibly high criminal re-offending rate. And although there are no accurate statistics on the recidivism rates, it is estimated to be as high as 87 percent. Yeah, I'll let that one sink in. The potential reasoning for this rate? Well, besides the lack of fear surrounding the criminal justice system and corruption within the system, There is honestly just a lack of rehabilitation and reintegration programs, according to the National Institute for Crime Prevention and Reintegration Programs. This means that often offenders and criminals go from the vulnerable areas and environments that they grew up in to the harsh environment and surroundings of prison, and then they are released straight back into the environment that they came from, where nothing has or will change. And here they continue the cycle. When Parsons was asked why he did what he did, even though he had a job, his response sums up the attitude and the worldview I have been explaining. He simply said, that is the way that life works. So honestly, given that there are so many factors involved, where do you even begin to fix a system that is clearly not working? Well, firstly with ensuring that those who commit crimes are punished for them and removed from society. The four convicted criminals are still in prison, however they still have access to social media, with various posts appearing on Facebook after their incarceration. And for every 10 people who are shocked and disgusted by their behaviour, there are at least one or two, sometimes more, that support or enable them. And that may not seem like a large ratio, but the individuals who enable and encourage such behaviour add to the levels of gangsterism and violence within society, and their part in all of this is often overlooked. To this day, the Hannah Cornelius Foundation continues to work in underprivileged communities, most notably View, which is a short distance from the area that Hannah grew up in. It is also an area known for extreme poverty and gang violence. Hannah Cornelius touched so many hearts during her life on this earth, and again after her death. Her brutal murder highlights the ugliest parts of society, and forces us to confront the prevalent issues that are plaguing the beautiful country that we call home. Today I'm here talking to you about Hannah. Last week I was telling you about Stasha and unfortunately I could dedicate the next 10, 20 or even 50 episodes to other victims of GBV in South Africa and I would struggle to run out of names and cases. Although it may seem futile, each action can have a positive reaction And by working together as a community, change can be achieved. And maybe then, all the innocent lives that have been lost will not have been lost in vain. Thank you for allowing me to spread awareness about the path that leads so many into darkness. But most importantly, thank you for joining me today to remember the person that Hannah Cornelius was, today and always. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!